Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another inspiring edition of New Promise Church's weekly sermons. We are truly delighted to have you join us today. Whether you are a longtime member of our congregation or a first-time visitor, we extend a warm and heartfelt welcome to you. Each week, we come together in the spirit of fellowship and reflection to explore timeless truths, gain spiritual insights, and draw closer to our Creator. We believe that through the power of the Word and the messages shared here, we can find guidance, comfort, and a deeper connection to our faith. Before we begin, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to prepare your hearts and minds for the wisdom and inspiration that will be shared here today. Whether you're listening from the comfort of your home, during your commute, or as part of our congregation, we encourage you to engage with an open heart and an open mind. As we embark on this journey of faith together, remember that you are not alone. We are a community bound by our shared belief, and we are here to support and uplift one another. Now, without further ado, let us turn our attention to the message that awaits us in today's episode. I stood up here on September 10th at my welcome service and I shared some of my vision that I had for the church and one of the main things that I shared that was my vision and my burden and what was on my heart is that I want us to be a church of prayer. I want us to be a church that truly believes in our heart, John 15, 5. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit, but without me, you can do nothing. And my prayer is that we would be a people as individuals and as a corporate church that are very needy before God. And we truly believe in our hearts every day that, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. This church cannot be fruitful without you anointing it with the power of your Holy Spirit. Today is my 13th sermon on the subject of prayer since I've started. I think I've estimated I did about 18 sermons since I've been here. Had a few in between, but this is number 13 on prayer. I started with Prayer 101, the privilege of prayer, and then I had one on the priority of prayer, the power of prayer, cultivating a desire, discipline, and delight in prayer, and then we have spent eight weeks in the Lord's Prayer as Jesus has been trying to teach us how to pray. And today my final message is entitled, Fasting That Pleases God. So Jesus ended the Lord's Prayer with a short teaching on fasting, and I thought it's only appropriate that I would do the same if our Lord Jesus would do that. So let's turn to our text together, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 16. I'm going to read through verse 21 from the New King James Version, the words of Jesus. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear 
to man to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. So as is my pattern every week up here, we want to know what the Bible says about fasting. Our number one place for Scripture interpretation is Scripture itself. The word fast in the Greek is nistia, and it simply means to abstain from food. It doesn't necessarily mean abstaining from water, but it means to abstain from food. Fasting is mentioned 30 times in the New Testament, and it's almost always in a, favor- a favorable manner. But interestingly enough, it's never commanded in the Bible, in the New Testament. And though it's not commanded, it seemed assumed by Jesus that there will be times when we will fast. If we look at our text, verse 16, he says, moreover, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast, he said when. So I I think Jesus assumed that there are going to be times that we will fast. Now, truth be told, most of us in this room probably don't do a lot of fasting, and we probably don't even know a whole lot about fasting. I mean, I'm sure most of you at work, when you go on your lunch break, there aren't people sitting around the table saying, hey, how'd your fast go this week? I did Wednesday and Thursday. Oh, I did the whole day uh, on Friday. You know, it's not something we usually think or talk about too much unless it's probably for dietary reasons. Thus, the importance to be taught today. We need to know more about it. So before I look at some biblical views of fasting, I want to just briefly go over some unbiblical views of fasting. But first of all, based on Scripture, you can pray and not fast. But if you're going to be biblical... You really can't fast and not pray. I mean, you can fast, but it's not a biblical fast. Praying and fasting go hand in hand, according to Scripture. And people have fasted for various non-biblical reasons throughout history. I'm going to give you a few of them. Ancient pagans. Now, when you hear the word pagan, I'm not sure what you think of. Traditionally, the word pagan for us as believers, Christians... It means someone who does not believe in the God of the Bible, the, the Old Testament or New Testament, the God of Jesus or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They might believe in some kind of gods. So that's what I refer to when you hear me talk about a pagan. So ancient pagans believed that when you ate food, demons could enter you through your food. So if they were feeling specific, uh, somehow... Uh, spiritually oppressed, they would not eat, and they thought that would help them spiritually. And I'm thinking that was probably called the demon diet or something. You know, it'd probably be popular today with all the fad diets. Are you on the demon diet? Um, Eastern religions, this would include Buddhism, Confucianism, Shintoism. 
Most of those religions use fasting as a pathway to mysticism. In other words, they fast because they think by depriving themselves they're going to see visions and dreams and their gods are going to speak to them in a special way because they're not eating. Some religions use fasting as a form of penance or a way to receive favor from God. And as a former Roman Catholic, I would say that was probably a part of my Catholicism. Fasting was a part of penance or feeling that I was gaining favor with God. And in our Western culture today, fasting is usually used for diets, for health and weight loss. And I myself do intermittent fasting. I'm sure some of you have heard of that or do it. You know, I try not to eat for like for 12 hours in a day. If I eat at 9 o'clock at night, I try not to eat till 9 in the morning. That's called intermittent fasting. And although that may have health benefits, uh, there's nothing scripturally that says that that has any type of spiritual influence on us. So let's talk now about a biblical view of fasting. What does the Bible say about fasting? Well, many people fasted in the Bible, and I made a, a list of, of them, and I'm going to rattle them off real quick. So if you do fasting, you're in good company here. Moses fasted, Samson, Samuel, Hannah, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, John the Baptist and his disciples, the Apostle Paul, and of course Jesus. So a lot of people fasted, even though they weren't commanded to fast. Now there, there actually is one command in the Bible to fast, and the only place this is found is in the Old Testament, connected to the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. And I've talked about the Day of Atonement before. I'm going to give you a brief description of it. Once a year, in the temple, the high priest would go into the inner court and he would perform ceremonies for all the people for the forgiveness of their sins. He would burn incense. He would cut the animals and sprinkle blood and do the different things. And there was a veil separating the inner court and the outer court. In the outer court was where the common folks like you and I hung out. We weren't allowed in the inner court. And only the high priest was allowed in the inner court, and only one time per year to be a representative for the people for the forgiveness of their sins. And that we sure see a foreshadow of Jesus in that. And during this time, it says in Levitic, Leviticus 6, 16, that during the Day of Atonement, the people afflicted their souls. And this was a Hebrew, Hebrew term which includes abstaining from food as an act of self-denial. So that time in the Bible is the only command anywhere for anyone to fast. And although Yom Kippur is still practiced today by Jews, even though the temple isn't there anymore, we have good news that we don't need the Day of Atonement anymore because we now have our, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And if, for your homework, you can read Matthew chapter 27. You read about Jesus hanging on the cross. And when he died, it says that the temple, that, that big um, curtain 
that was separating the inner court and the outer court tore in two from top to bottom, and that was the end of, of the lambs and the ceremonies and the veil, because now we have our high priest, Jesus Christ, who has forgiven us of our sins. First Timothy 2.15 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So that's great, the great news of the gospel. Now, although fasting is not commanded in the Bible, other than the Day of Atonement, there are many biblical recordings of fasting. And so I'm going to give you six of them. Be good to write these down because if this was the reason people fasted in the Bible, even though they weren't commanded, it's probably good reasons that maybe we should think about fasting. So reasons people fasted. Number one, fasting is associated with the mourning. If you read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read about King David. He had committed sexual sin with Bathsheba. They had a child, and that child got very sick, eventually died. And when the child was sick, the Bible says that David fasted and prayed during that time of mourning. We have an example in the New Testament in the words of Christ, which I'll read to you, Matthew chapter 9. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So a simple illustration. Good times were not necessarily fasting during times of mourning. It almost seems to be a natural inclination to fast and stay away from food. Number two. People fasted during overwhelming danger. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 that King Jehoshaphat proclaimed a national fast when Judah was being threatened by the Moabites and the Ammonites. The country was under siege. He says, we all need to fast. We're under danger. Many of you have probably read the story of Queen Esther, or you've seen the movie of it. There's a lot of movies out there. My wife watched a version of it a couple weeks ago. And there was this evil guy named Haman. He had a plan to destroy all the, the Jews and to exterminate them. So because of that danger, all the Jews went on a three-day fast to ask God for protection. Number three. The disciples fasted when faced with extreme demonic oppression and possession. So the disciples were out. They were, saw people that were demon-possessed. They laid hands on them. They tried to cast out the demons. But for some reason, there were some really stubborn demons that they couldn't get out, that only Jesus could get out. And Jesus said, some of these only come out by prayer and fasting. So if you're up against, against it with the devil in your life, might be a time for fasting. Number four. People fasted when broken over their sin and the sin of others. 
We read the story of Jonah in Jonah chapter 3. He, he preached in Nineveh, and the people were so convicted of their sin that they all called a fast. They said, we're, we're so evil, we're so sinful, we need to fast before God. In Daniel chapter 10, it says that Daniel fasted for three weeks in brokenness over his sin and the sin of his people. So brokenness over sin will drive us to fasting. Number five, fasting may accompany the beginning of an important task or ministry. We read in Matthew chapter 4 that right before Jesus started his preaching ministry, he fasted for 40 days to get close to his father. So if you're thinking about starting a ministry or something really important in your life, may not require a 40-day fast, but it may require fasting. And finally, number six, people fasted to find and follow God's will. In Acts chapter 13, it records that the church in Antioch fasted and prayed and laid hands on Barnabas and Saul, who became Paul, and sent them out into ministry. So this very important decision of who are we going to send out, we're going to send out this guy Saul, who was a murderer of Christians, and now he says he's a Christian. They prayed, and they sent him out, and Barnabas. And then in the next chapter, Acts 14, it says that Barnabas and Saul fasted and prayed to appoint elders in the churches that they founded. So when there's something going on of important spiritual significance, it could be a time to fast and pray. I'd like to relate this last point to my preaching ministry because my preaching ministry has really motivated me to fast and to pray. If I could find the scripture here. The words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 really echo in my my mind. He says, "And And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As I, as a pastor, seek the will of God for these sermons, I feel like Paul, every week, You may not see my knees knocking, but inside I really have a sense of fear and trembling that, oh my gosh, I have to tell these people the truth of what God's Word said. And I'm so afraid of getting it wrong that I really, really take it serious to pray and to fast and to study. One of my prayers to God is always, Lord, help me share the truth, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. So I'm going to just, I may have shared this with you before, I can't remember, but this, this will help you pray for me of how I prepare for my sermons. 
To preach a 35-minute sermon takes me approximately 20 hours of studying on the average, if I'm going to do it right. Because all these scriptures I put up there, I study them. I want to know what they mean in their context. And I learned from my pastor, Alistair Begg, a four-point preaching outline of how to study. First thing I do is I read myself full. So I will spend many hours reading the Bible, reading commentaries, reading old notes from sermons, getting my hands on anything I can about the subject matter, and I read myself full, my heart and my mind. That's number one. And then number two is I write myself empty. And I usually do that while I'm reading myself full. I'm writing notes. Everything that comes to my mind that is pertinent to the teaching, I write it down. And I usually end up with about 12 pages of handwritten notes. And then number three is I think myself through and through much prayer and fasting, I, I'm, I now have to somehow get this three hours of material down to 35 minutes. So I just keep rewriting, rewriting, until I get it down into a form that I can finally type out in my notes. And the last thing I do, which is the funnest for me, when it's done, I pray myself hot. And then I just get to Saturday night, I just get on my knees, I put up my teaching, and I just go over every line of the sermon, and I pray over it. And that's, that's my pattern for preaching. So why am I sharing this with you? One is, please pray for me, because this is all by the Holy Spirit. Pray for me, and I would even love if you prayed and fasted for me sometimes. And while I study those 20 hours, I don't eat for those 20 hours. I usually go through like six, three, six or seven hour sessions of studying and I just don't want to eat because I don't want to be full. I don't want to be belching. I don't want to think of anything but the Word of God and I'm focused on the Word. So I share this with you. I, I pray, Lord, let them not, I hope they don't think I'm trying to um, be prideful or puff myself up I'm trying to give you an example of how important it is, is if, if you want to know God's Word, to love God's Word, to understand God's Word, there's going to be times you're going to have to pray and you're going to have to fast to get insight if you really want the nuggets of God's Word. So please pray for me as I live this pattern out week by week. Well, let's back to our text in Matthew 6. Jesus gives us some words of how not to fast. And he gives three corrections to the scribes and the Pharisees, the people he called the hypocrites. We looked at that term hypocrite one, uh, several sermons ago, and it's a term that was used for actors. They were called hypocrites who did acting with a mask. They would have a smiley face, but behind they might be angry. It, they were hypocrites. What was behind the mask didn't represent what was on the mask. These were hypocrites. So he corrects three things, Jesus. He corrects their giving, their praying, and their fasting. So whatever he corrected, we want to make sure we don't do that. 
So he corrects their giving in Matthew 6, verse 2 and 3. They're giving. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then verse 5, he corrects praying. He says, and when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing on the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then finally he corrects fasting. Verse 16, When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. All of these three corrections are rooted in pride. The hypocrites had one thing in mind. It was not the glory of God. It was the glory of self. Look at me. Look at how holy and righteous I am. Please give me a pat on the back. Verse 16, it said, says, they had a sad countenance. They disfigured their faces. And history tells us some even wore makeup. They put makeup on to make themselves look more pale so that we could really think they were martyrs for God. They wanted a pat on the back for the great sacrifices. Jesus said also in verse 16, Assuredly, I say you, they have their reward. If you seek the reward of men for anything in ministry, fasting, praying, giving, and, and man rewards you, that's all the reward you're getting. You're not going to get a pat on the back from God in this life or the life to come. And he says, you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who sees in secret, and he will reward you openly. To anoint your head was like these oils like had good fragrance to them. It was like having basic hygiene. He was basically saying, like, wash your, wash your face, shave, put on some makeup, put some cologne on, some perfume. Make yourself look your best. You don't want anyone to know that you're fasting when you're fast. Only God. Now, maybe I'll tell my wife I'm fasting just so she doesn't, you know, cook me dinner or something. But I don't walk out of my office and, oh, honey, I'm I'm preparing for the sermon today. No, no food, you know. No, no, we, we don't do that. This applies to fasting, and this applies to all ministry. We don't do it for men. We do it for God. So when we fast, when we do ministry, we do it joyfully, we do it enthusiastically. And I was just telling somebody uh, yesterday and the day before that I love our, our women's ministry here. The things that they do here. I look at some of the events they do, and it's such hard work. And they're always smiling. Nobody's complaining, and nobody's trying to take credit. Such a godly example to me. And I thank you for what you do, and most of all, for your example.
for your Christ-likeness. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't come naturally for me. I like to be liked by people. <laughs> I like a pat on the back. I have to repent constantly of self, as do you. It is not natural, it is supernatural to do something and to get no credit and to be happy with it. We need to pray and ask God to help us with that. Well, I'm going to give you just real basic here, quickly. Some practical information on fasting. Fasting 101 here. Some things you can do. I'm going to give you four basic levels of fasting. This is based on you eat three meals a day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Abstain from a meal. That could be your first level. I'm not going to eat lunch today. Instead, I'm going to uh, read my Bible and I'm going to pray. And the two main benefits of this are going to be this, time and focus. Because the 20 or 30 minutes you would have used to eat, you're going to use it to pray and spend time in God's Word. And instead of focusing on the food, you're going to be focused on the bread of life, God's Word. And boy, God can just do some tremendous things in your life and in, the, in this world through that time. Level number two, abstain from two meals. Maybe you do lunch for a while and you think, okay, I'm doing pretty good with this. Let's try lunch and dinner. Okay? Number three, abstain from food for a whole day. Don't eat all day. You might need to build up to that. And you'll have to make sure the time that you're going to eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're praying and spending time in God's Word, worshiping, listening to music, doing something. And number four would be fast for multiple days. That's going to be the most difficult. Um, you probably would have to build up to that. I regularly fast for meals in a day. The, the longest fast I've ever been on is three days, and a lot of that has to do with because I've had very physical labor work, and it's been hard for me to fast beyond that and have strength. And then just practically, if you want to fast, check with your doctor. Make sure that the supplements you're taking, the medicines could be taken with food, without food, you know, that kind of stuff. We want to use wisdom and common sense. And then I, uh, if we can go to the next slide, I have a little paragraph here on fasting. <clears throat> Genuine biblical fasting is rooted in a desire to spend more purposeful, concentrated, and focused time with God that we might seek His face seek his hand, and seek his will as we spend time with him in prayer. And now in conclusion, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think Jesus purposely said these words after talking about prayer. He says, don't lay up things. Don't lay them up. He's talking about stuff, material things. Don't, don't live a life where you're piling up 
material things, that that's what your focus is. He says, instead, lay up, pile up treasures that are in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if you want to pile up treasures that last, what a great paradox this is, living in the world. Focus on things you can't see and live for them. Don't live for things that you can see. Boy, that, that's not a message you're going to get from the world, but that's the message we get from the Bible. And I think of the quote from Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Heavenly treasures. And Jesus ends in verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure in life? I mean, what do you treasure? What, what are you passionate about? What do you greatly desire? What do you think about most of the time? You know, what do you treasure? The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So whatever you treasure, your heart's going to camp on that. If you treasure, I collect cars and I got 20 cars and that's my thing, that's what you're going to be thinking about all the time. If you treasure your job, it's the most important thing in the world, then that's where your heart's going to be, your thoughts, your mind, you're going to be thinking about your job. I asked myself this morning, I said, what do I treasure? I mean, it's, it's so easy. I treasure my wife. I treasure my kids. I treasure my grandkids. I treasure you at New Promise Church, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's really, those are the things I treasure. And most of all, I treasure Jesus Christ. And I treasure God's word. The Bible says heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word is going to last forever. It's the only thing that lasts, the truth of God's word. And I was thinking, you've heard the question, if your house was ready to burn down, what's, what would you grab? And I thought, I'm grabbing my wife's hand, and I'm grabbing my 36-year-old glued-up, taped-up Bible, and I got all I need to get me through life. And then if I got time, I might grab the leftover chicken wings in the refrigerator because I love my wings. My wife knows I treasure wings. Now, that's a joke. Um, so what do you treasure in life? This is a great question as we just close our, our prayer series. We have prayer 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights. We have prayer before our services here. We have ministries you can be involved in here. I am never going to be a pastor that's going to try to guilt you into things, try to drive you like a snowplow. That's why I always ask you, pray about it. Should you be involved in the children's ministry? Should you be at the prayer meetings? That's between you and God. I do not judge anyone, any way here if you're not doing something here. I assume you got a good reason for not being in prayer meetings not being involved in ministry. I assume the best. That's between you and God. But you need to go to God and make sure that you're not treasuring something 
that you shouldn't be that's keeping you from prayer or keeping you from ministry. That's between you and the Lord, and that's between me and the Lord. And that's my challenge to you, is to pray that God would guide your priorities. I'll close with a a quote from C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May that echo in our hearts every day as we choose our priorities. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, please break up the fallow ground of our hearts, our stubborn, selfish wills, our desires for this world, self. We're wired for self. Your word says that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Convict us, change us, give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness and the things of God, and help us to disdain the things of this world. We all need help, Lord. We all get it backwards so many times throughout our days, and that's why we're just crying out to you right now for your help, Lord. Help us to be the committed followers of Jesus Christ that you desire for us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to close with a song, a solemn song. It's called Breathe on Me, Breath of God. And it's really a good song to wrap up our prayer series. It just goes full circle from the first time I preached on September 10th. Lord, Help us to see our neediness as individuals. Help us to see our neediness as a church. Help us to see the terrible state of the country that it is in now without God. And, and we, let's, this song that we're going to sing, it's a prayer. Let's, let's sing it and pray it together that God would breathe his spirit on us, on this church, and on this country, because all three of those areas are desperately in need of the Spirit of God to touch us today. At the beginning of the service, and then again at the end, Pastor Joe was talking about the need that we have for people in our children's ministry. That caused me to reflect on an article I read this past week about the events that took place in Kansas City at the victory celebration for, as the article said, the heroes of the Super Bowl. 
those heroes are not people that we would want leading our youth ministry. We have Jason Kelsey, or Travis Kelsey, one of the Kelseys, whoever it was, pushing his coach during the game. He showed up at the victory parade so intoxicated that he made a fool of himself. Patrick Mahomes had to actually help him stand up when he tried singing and speaking at the celebration. One of the other players was so intoxicated during the parade. He was dancing in the street, jumping up on top of cars, took his shirt off, laid down in the street, shoeless. Brittany Mahomes posted on social media a picture of her receiving an IV. Purpose of receiving an IV is when you are so dehydrated from drinking so much, it helps you get rid of your hangover. These are our heroes. And then, of course, at the end of this victory celebration, we had the tragedy of a woman losing her life and a number of people being shot, most of whom were children, who came out to see their heroes. What happened in Kansas City is simply a microcosm of what our nation has become. And I'll use that as a segue to read the benediction that Pastor Joe has asked me to read this morning. It comes from Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Our land, our country, needs our prayers. Go in peace.